have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, starting with verse 31 through 36. So I want to do something a little different tonight. Would everybody's mind standing? And let's read the Word of God together. This is a short text, only five verses. Let's read this together. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You may be seated. Jesus just finished telling the Jews that unless they believed he is the I am, they would die in their sin. And as Jesus was speaking the gospel... As Jesus was speaking, the gospel writer John says in verse 30 that many believed in him. If you remember the last time I spoke, many believed in him. In our text tonight, Jesus gives a test to those who claim to be true believers, then and now. True disciples come to obey Christ's word, and the truth of his word sets us free. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the the truth does set us free. The truth illuminates our minds and hearts. Help us, God, to obey the truth. Help us to continue in the truth as we hear your words tonight in Christ's precious name. A few years ago, when my mother and father were still alive, our family was at our home or their home for dinner. My nephew and I got into this conversation about Christianity. And it started off fine, but we, we came to a roadblock. We started button heads. And I think the main point of contention for him was this, that I was too narrow-minded. And I must admit I am. I I am very narrow-minded. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to Christianity, in my mind, and I think and I believe with all my heart in the Bible, there are no alternatives. There's no room for alternatives. Anyway, at the end of our discussion or argument, however you want to look at it, he said, well, Uncle John, whatever makes you happy. In other words, if it's true for you, then go for it. But what's true for me, I'll believe that, and I'll live by that. And as I was thinking about his statement, I realized that my nephew had postmodern thinking. And postmodern thinking really dominates most of the mind in the, cult- in the culture today. Historically, we went from postmodernism, which characterized the Western world prior to the 17th century, and basically said that ultimate truth could be known, and the way to this knowledge is through direct revelation. This direct revelation was generally assumed to come from God. That's the way they thought prior to the 17th century. In other words, society depended on God for truth. 
It said a just society was based on revelation from a just God. By having faith in God, the world could be rightly understood. Then there was a shift around the middle of the 1600s. From pre-modernism, which depended on God for divine revelation, truth. To modernism, which had its beginnings with the French philosopher and mathematician René Descartes. Many of you may have heard of René Descartes. He was a Roman Catholic who was troubled by the philosophical skepticism and due to to the Protestant Reformation theological uncertainty. So he was troubled by the philosophy and the theology of his day. So he had doubts and began to search. And part of his search was to doubt everything. And he concluded that at least he knew that he doubted everything, which is the form of thinking in his mind. So he concluded with his famous statement. Many of you may have heard this. I think, therefore I am. Or I am thinking, therefore I exist. The car thought he existed to think. The sad thing is, whether he realized it or not, it brought about a shift in Western thinking at that time. It removed God from the center stage, replacing it with human reasoning, humanism. And this was the beginning of modernism. Modernism was an attempt to use universal reason as a guide to justice. In other words, human reasoning, logic... And science replaced reliance on God for truth and a just society. Then in the wake of two world wars in the 1900s, another shift took place. A postmodern climate began to spread throughout the Western world. Confidence in human reasoning was shattered. Not only was reliance on God's truth replaced with human reasoning, logic and science, but postmodernism proved that all of that to be a failure. It said, reliance on God for truth failed, and reliance on human reasoning, logic, and science also failed. Postmodern's first major defender was the 19th century philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche. The madman, they called him. Some of you may remember Nietzsche's famous statement, God is dead. He believed that there were no eternal facts, just as there are no absolute truths. But of course, there are no absolute truths because there is no God to answer to. If God is dead, where is the truth? So how would we define this difficult term since so many different people use it to focus on so many different facets of culture and intellectual life? Simply speaking, and I think we can define it like this, postmodernism is the view that says absolute truth cannot be discovered at all. Neither through reason nor tradition. In other words, there are no absolute truths. Only truths that are relevant to each individual. Josh McDowell says in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, where he is defining postmodernism, he says the essential component, which is relativism, he says there are no absolute truths. Only truths that are relevant to each individual. Christianity may be true for you, but it's not true for me. He goes on to say, it assumes that Christianity may be true for some people in some places and at some times, but it's not true for all people in all places at all times. It's relatively true, not absolutely or universally true, which I always use this. Are you absolutely sure about that? 
And that's basically where we are today. We went from pre-modernism prior to the 17th century, which relied on God for truth, to modernism around the 1600s, which ditched relying on God for truth to reliant on human reasoning, logic, and science, to postmodernism, which came about in the mid-1900s, to the present, which basically says there are no absolutes. Oh, by the way, um, it's even worse. Besides there are no absolutes, you create your own truths, you create your own value. That's existentialism. And how do we respond as Christians in this culture? We speak and live by the truth of God's word. That's how we live. We let God's truth define us, not the culture. And when, God, and when God's truth defines us, we are true disciples of the Son, Jesus Christ, and we're, tr- we're truly free. And here is the challenging proposition we need to ask ourselves tonight in light of our text, in light of what we just read. Are we true disciples of Christ who are characterized not by living according to the culture, but by living in the truth of God's word, which truly makes us free? And in our text tonight, we're going to see what truth that sets us free looks like and what it doesn't look like. The three things we're going to look at is true freedom, false freedom, and the son's freedom. Let's look at the first one, true freedom. True freedom in our lives is the result of believing Christ. Continuing in Christ's words, knowing the truth which sets us free. Again in verse 31 and verse 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now in order to understand who Jesus was speaking with, we need to go back to the previous verses, which I spoke in the last uh, few months. And actually, the previous chapters, Jesus was speaking to the Jewish crowds and the Jewish leaders during the Feast of the Tabernacles. In chapter 7, verse 31, and chapter 8, verse 30, it says, many, and hear this, many believed in him. And as I said the last time, this does not necessarily mean that all of the many had a genuine belief. We see this in other parts of scripture, that many believed, but superficially. As a matter of fact, John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, gives us some insight into their superficial belief. Let's read that. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But... Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Just because someone says, I believe in Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean conversion has taken place. In Matthew's Gospel, after Jesus gave this magnificent sermon on the mount, He concluded with these words in chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Of course, Jesus was not at all suggesting that works are necessary for salvation. What he was saying was genuine works or genuine faith produces 
good works. So all profession of faith in Christ does not always mean true conversion. As a matter of fact, Jesus describes many of the Jews as slaves of sin. A few verses down, verse 34. Indifferent to his words and children of the devil in verse 44. What exactly does genuine salvation, a genuine disciple, a genuine freedom look like? What does that really look like? And Jesus challenges those who said they believe. Okay? Previous verse, he said many believed in him. Now he begins to challenge them. The first thing is, we must believe in Christ. Starting point in genuine belief is, in in genuine uh, conversion, in genuine freedom, is true Believe in Christ. It's believing in the Son of God. Jesus was speaking to those who said they believed in Him. Now superficial belief believes intellectually, but there's no heart commitment to Christ. Genuine faith believes intellectually, but goes a step beyond. It says, I know the facts about Jesus. I know the facts about salvation. I affirm them, and now I'm going to act on them. It says, I know that he is the only hope for salvation. So you have to have a genuine belief in Christ. Second thing is, you abide in Christ's words. We're going to spend a little time on this. So let me take a sip of water now. Verse 31, again, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The necessary condition is to abide in His Word. What does it mean to abide in Christ's Word? And this is what it doesn't mean. I just read it. That's what it doesn't mean. I just read it. There are multitudes of people who read the Bible and would not know Jesus if they tripped over Him. That's where it starts. Yes, that's where it starts. However, if we don't continue in it, It is absolutely meaningless. James tells us in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hero who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. We must abide in his word. Abide comes from the Greek word meno, and means to remain, to stay, to live, to dwell, to endure, to continue. In other words, we live or we continue in his word. His word controls our lives. His word is our life. Why? Because he's the living word in the believer's heart. Again, if you abide in my word, the emphasis is on you. If you abide, and this was addressed to those whose faith was undeveloped. They were the ones who believed him, but did not yet believe on him. In other words, they believed him as to his claims to being Messiah. With their own interpretation, of course. But they did not commit themselves to him. It's a big difference, folks. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. Great leaders have always demanded personal allegiance. King Arthur bound his knights to him by rigid vows. Giuseppe Garboldi, 19th century Italian patriarch, 
offered his followers hunger, death, and Italy's freedom. So Winston Churchill's stirring speech in the House of Commons, May 13, 1940, is best remembered by the dramatic words, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And when Christ's followers, most of them heard about what he wanted, they left him. But besides forgiveness and peace, this is precisely what Jesus, Jesus offers. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Cross represents death. Cross represents suffering. I've seen so many respond, and, and Pastor Brian could affirm this. We've seen so many affo- uh, uh, respond to the altar call, saying the sinner's prayer. But when hard times come, or when a Christian challenges them about their sin, they're gone. They fail to continue or abide in Christ's words. If you remember when Jesus gave the discourse on the bread of life in John 6, he spoke to the people about their inability to come to him apart from the Father drawing them to him. And when they heard this, John chapter 6, verse 66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were the ones that believed Jesus, at least up to a point. However, once Jesus got to the most important issue, they left. They didn't like to hear about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And that unless the Father draws them, they cannot come to him. And to pick up their cross and follow him. And also that they would be persecuted and go through trials and tribulations. No, no. They didn't like that. The the discipleship was temporary at best. It was not genuine. Jesus in the parable of the four soils in in Matthew 13 verse 20 said... As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. See, they fail to continue in the word. But you know what they also fail to realize? They fail to realize that in the midst of all that, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of hard times, that Christ's peace will rule their hearts. See, the road to real freedom is abiding in Christ's words, which proves we are genuine disciples of him. So we see Jesus encouraging those who claim to believe in him to continue in his teaching. The third thing is, we will know the truth. We will know the truth. Believe in Jesus. True freedom is believing in Jesus. Abiding in the word. Knowing the truth. Abiding in the word or continuing the word proves you are a true disciple. What's a disciple? A disciple is a learner. It's a follower. It's a one who adheres to the teachings of its leader. And by remaining in the word, not only proves you are a disciple, but you're going to know the truth. Not accumulated knowledge, but experiential knowledge of Jesus. John 1.17 says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul told the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, the 21st verse, the truth is in Jesus. Truth is more than a set of rules and a statement. Truth is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Of course, the scripture is the revelation of divine truth. And in it, Jesus Christ, who is truth incarnate, the word made flesh, is revealed. Charles Dodd, in his commentary, said, Because of truth's intimate connection with Jesus, 
True disciples must not only hear his words, they must be in some sort united with him who is the truth. So truth, true disciples not only hear truth, but are also united with Christ, who is the truth. Christians are not the way and the truth and the life, but made one with the way and the truth and the life. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Once again, we are not the truth, just as much as we are not deity. However, we are united with the truth. A mere knowledge of the truth does not make one a Christian or united with Christ. 2 Timothy, um, the third chapter, 7th verse, Paul instructs Timothy about false teachers who were deceiving gullible women at that time with their deceptive teaching. He tells Timothy that these women are always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And knowledge here means more than just a head knowledge. It means knowledge that is gained by experience. And Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar, he says, this would mean not merely an intellectual understanding of truth, but a heart submission and appropriation of the same resulting in salvation. Over the years, I have met people who can quote the Bible better than Christians. They have learned scriptures, but they've never arrived at the knowledge of the truth. All they have is accumulated head knowledge. They may have read, studied, and reread the Bible, but they've never experienced the truth because they've never obeyed it from their hearts. When we become followers and learners of Christ and His Word, and we continue in it and obey it, we open ourselves up to truth. Not truth about temporal things, but truth about spiritual things like our sinful nature, God's holiness, salvation, and spiritual growth. The more we abide in this truth, the more truth He gives us. Dr. Kent Yu says, we all need to know the word of God. We must be students of the word. Not only preachers, not just the educated, but all believers. And yet, even if that does not take place, we are not necessarily abiding. To abide in the word, we must obey it. And I want to add to his words, if we're obeying it, we're going to know the truth, and we're going to learn more truth, and more truth, and more truth. The more we obey the truth, the more truth God gives us. Dr. Hughes goes on to say, and that's how freedom comes. We learn the word of God, we obey it, and then we are free. So true freedom comes by believing. It comes by abiding in the word and knowing the truth. And that is what sets us free. The truth sets you free. What are we free from? What are we free from? Well, first of all, we're free from the opposite of truth, which is falsehood. Starting with the truth of the gospel... 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the first thing is, uh, what we're free from is falsehood. God takes the blinders off and we're able to see the truth of the gospel. We're able to see the truth of Christ. Believers have been set free from the falsehood to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been set free also from condemnation. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from judgment. John 3.18 Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. We have been set free from spiritual death. John 8.51 Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And of course we've been set free from sin. Romans 6.18 And having been set free 
from sin having becoming slaves of righteousness. Isn't this why Jesus came to seek and save the lost, as Paul told the Galatian church in the fifth chapter, the first verse? He said, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ came to set us free. That's what true freedom looks like. Let's look at what false freedom looks like. It's possible for someone to think they are free, but in reality, a slave to their own sin. Verses 33 and 34 again. They answered, and we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. You hear the arrogance? They're talking to Christ, the living God. We're not slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. There were false descendants of Abraham, and there were false descendants of the family of God today as well. They rejected the offer of freedom from Jesus and insisted that they are already free and have never been a slave to anyone. Now, they couldn't have been talking about political freedom. I mean, because if you think about it, just... You know, in, in biblical history, they were enslaved in the past in Egypt under Pharaoh. And then um, during the exile to the, the northern kingdom was enslaved to who? Assyria. And the, the southern kingdom to Judah and the Babylonians. And in Persia as well as under Greece. And now they're enslaved under the political uh, rule of uh, Rome. But they thought they were free because of their identity with the patriarch Abraham. They wrongly thought, how can we be slaves of anyone since we are descendants of Abraham? But Jesus wasn't speaking about racial or religious identity. No, that's, they missed the whole point. He was speaking about inward spiritual freedom that only comes from the Son of God, which they did not possess. He was speaking about inward spiritual freedom. They thought, we have Abraham. Jesus, we're free. They believed they had inward spiritual freedom because of their physical outward association with Abraham. And after all, they were circumcised. They were of the circumcision. They followed the law of Moses, at least they thought they did. All the religious activity they thought brought them freedom. But inwardly, Jesus would call them dead men. Spiritually decayed, as many are today in the midst of all the spiritual activity. They weren't circumcised in their hearts. Paul told the church in Rome, the second chapter, verses 28 and 29, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision basically was an outward sign for the Jew that he belonged to God and that he was part of God's uh, covenant people and an heir to God's promises. And the Jews prided themselves on that. And we have many today priding themselves on their religious heritage. But the Apostle Paul, Paul tells them, listen, membership in God's family is not an outward sign of obedience to the law. It's an inward reality of a changed heart that could only happen by the Holy Spirit. 
In other words, salvation is the result of the work of the Spirit in the heart, not by our efforts to obey the commandments. A real Jew is a real, a real Jew, a real descendant of Abraham is one who had his heart circumcised by the Spirit of God. And today is no different the way people think about belonging to the family of God. Of course we don't think, well, I'm circumcised and I'm the seed of Abraham and I follow the law of Moses. We don't think that. No. Today it's more like this. I'm Catholic and I go to church. Or I'm Lutheran or Presbyterian or Methodist and we got it right. Or maybe better yet, I'm a member of sonship. Yeah. And I'm going to get to heaven because of that. Well, maybe some people think my grandmother is a godly woman and prays for me, so I know when I die, I'm going straight to heaven. <coughs> but just like the Jews who thought they were free because of their association with Abraham, many, many, many people today think they are free, but in reality, they are slaves. They are in strong bondage. The Lord reply, replies to the Jew. The Jews' ignorance in verse 34. He says, truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. They were practicing sin. And as usual, as usual, the Lord goes right to the heart of the matter, which in this case is sin. Because he prefaced his response with truly, truly, Jesus was not just giving an opinion. What he was saying was of great importance. And we need to listen carefully. The Jews thought they were free. And Jesus saying, truly, truly, if you practice sin, you're a slave to it. However, Jesus tells them not only they were not free, but in reality they are slaves. Slaves of sin. Their bondage was not to any political power, but something much more devastating. And that is spiritual and moral depravity. And anyone outside the Savior's salvation are in deep bondage to sin. The Bible is explicitly clear that humans are sinners and are slaves to sin. When Adam sinned, the whole human race plummeted into sin. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And all of us became slaves of our sin. Jesus said, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this is not speaking merely of individual acts of sin, but living a life of sin. Someone might, might, might say, well, I'm not a slave to sin. The sin I'm committing, I want to do it. And I have a free will and I choose to do it. But what they fail to realize is their choosing is according to their disposition. And their disposition is their sinful nature. They are in bondage to their own wills, which they call free but Martin Luther has a writing out called Bondage of the Will. Because outside of Christ, we're all in bondage to our wills. In the fall, the will fell also. Anyone outside of Christ is in bondage and can't help but sin, even when they think they are not sinning. A Christian, however, is not a slave anymore of sin, even though from time to time he or she may slip into sin. All of us as Christians at time to time do slip into sin. Sin, however, sin does not master our lives anymore because Paul told the church in Rome, we died to sin. Paul also told them in chapter 6, verse, verses 6 to 8, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What happens to a Christian is we grow in sanctification and we sin less 
and lust. See, sin has no mastery over us anymore. Not that we will have sinless perfection in this life. 1 John 1.8 says, if we say, and he's speaking to Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But it does not control us anymore. 1 John, also John says this in his second chapter, the fourth verse, he says, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a lawyer and the truth is not in him. In other words, let me put those two together. In other words, when we come to faith in Christ, the chains of sin have been broken and sin no longer characterizes us. That's the difference. Sin no longer characterizes me. If you're a Christian, sin no longer characterizes you. When we sin, as Christians, there's remorse and there's genuine repentance before God. Former slave trader turned minister of the gospel, John Newton, learned what it was to rest in the grace of God. Two or three years before the death of John Newton, when his sight was so dim that he was no longer able to read, a friend and a brother in the ministry called to have breakfast with him. Their custom was to read the word of God following mealtime, after which Newton would make a few short remarks on the biblical passage, and then appropriate prayer, an appropriate prayer would be offered. That day, however, there was a silence after the words of the scripture, by grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am, after they were read. Finally, after several minutes, Newton spoke, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. When you become a Christian... You will be under the world's microscope. And I'm probably speaking to mostly Christians here. You're under the world's microscope. You at times may fail and fall into sin. And the gracious loving world around you will say. And you call yourself a Christian? And you can with complete confidence say with Newton. John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. And Paul. Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am what I once was a slave. I am not, excuse me, I am not what I once was a slave to sin and Satan. The unbeliever cannot say that. Thinking you're free without Christ is false freedom. True freedom only comes from living the truth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It only comes from Him. It's the Son's freedom that sets us free. Verse 35 and 36. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You see, the Jews may have had Abraham's physical descendant. And part of God's chosen nation. But they were still a slave. Not sons because of sin. And do not remain in the house. 
And Jesus told a very compelling story in Matthew to them. And a, and, a, and a strong warning to them. He says in Matthew 8, verse 11 and 12, he says, Jesus warned them and says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, and he's talking to the Jews now, will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, they rejected the son and were put out of God's house. Only those who belong to the son, whether they are physical descendants or not, those who have been born again, they are the sons of God and remain in the house. And in this context, the son in the house, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ. And all who belong to him have the same privileges he has and remains in the house and are set free. As the son who rules over God's house, we see that in Hebrews, Christ sets men free from their bondage of sin, makes them sons and adopts them into God's household. John Wesley, the Anglican theologian and founder of the Methodist movement, says it like this, All sinners shall be cast out of God's household as the slave was cast out of Abraham's. But I, the Son, abide therein forever. If I therefore make you free, ye shall partake of the same privilege, being made free from all guilt and sin, ye shall abide in the house of God forever. Only God the Son can take the worst of sinners, bound in chains of darkness and sin, and set them free. In the 70s, there was a serial killer named David Berkowitz, known as the son of Sam. I remember the deep concern we all had of where he would kill his next victim. At that time, I was in a, before my Christian days and my crazy sinful days, I was in a band, and we were playing at clubs, and I remember we were all a little nervous getting out of the car, especially we were playing in the club in the area where he was attacking. And I remember that one of the guys in the band had a little bit of his long hair. And he was so nervous that when he got out, we let him out of his car. He put his hair up in, you know, like a hat. And, you know. Anyway, we were all deeply concerned. And after killing six people, wounding seven in a year, long rampage in the New York City area, it became one of the biggest manhunts in the history of, of New York. They finally seized and arrested him on August 15, 1977. He pleaded guilty and was sentenced to serve jail the jail time for the rest of his life. And this, this man at the time, from his own admission, David Berkowitz, he said uh, he was demon-possessed. And he was. He was demon-possessed. He heard voices to tell him to kill him. About ten years into his jail term, some other prisoner tried to kill him by slitting his throat. And the doctor who treated him said it was a miracle that he survived. And we know it was a miracle because God said it wasn't his time. One day, a fellow prisoner who was a believer had the audacity to share the gospel of Christ with them. And this person kept speaking with Berkowitz about Christ. And within a couple of months, David Berkowitz came to faith in Jesus. His life was totally transformed by the power of God through the glorious gospel of Christ. The chains fell off. Light replaced darkness. The veil was removed. The son, of, the, the son set David Berkowitz free. Today, David Berkowitz is serving Christ in prison. He is a chaplain clerk. Uh, he's a chaplain clerk. Uh, he counsels fellow prisoners who want to give up on life and shares the gospel with them. And many uh, come to faith in Christ as he did. He does mail correspondence. The man is free. Listen, he's, 
He is freer in prison than any unbeliever outside of prison. There is not one person who rejects son is as free as David Berkowitz or any believer in Christ. He's free. Let me conclude. If we believe in Christ, if we abide in his word, if we know the truth, the son has set us free. We are no longer slaves of sin. We are now slaves of righteousness. You and I are serving someone. Whether we know it or not, we're serving someone. It's either sin or Christ. I love what Dr. Max Anders said. He said, every freedom has a corresponding bondage. And every bondage has a corresponding freedom. You can be free from the toothbrush and a slave to cavities. Or you can be a slave to the toothbrush and free from cavities. You cannot be free from the toothbrush and free from the cavities. That kind of freedom does not exist. By nature, that is what we want. Absolute freedom. But we can't have it. It simply doesn't exist. The athlete can be a slave to training and excel, or he can be free from rigorous training and fail. There is no such thing as total freedom. Always there is one bondage and one freedom. You choose. And he, he, say, he goes on to say this. As Christians, this choice takes on an even greater significance. We can be free from sin and a slave to God, or we can be free from God and a slave to sin. You choose. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freeman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. 1 Corinthians 7.22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. And I think Dr. Anders said it well. Let me conclude with the same question as I asked you earlier. Are we disciples of Christ, who, character, who are characterized not by living according to the culture, but by living in the truth of God's word, which makes you free. I want you to think about that this week. As Joshua told the children of Israel in chapter 24, verse 15, choose this day whom you will serve. Are you serving sin and you're enslaved, or are you serving Christ and are a slave to him and have been set free from sin? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, God, that Christ set us free from sin. And we're proud to be called slaves of Christ. But we've been set free from the slavery of sin, the world, the devil, and the flesh, which kept us in change and in bondage. Now we are free to serve you, free to tell the glorious gospel to a lost and dying world. Free from the, the agony of the thought of going to hell. And free to think of the joy that we are going to have being with Christ in heaven forever and ever. Help your people to know they have been set free from sin. And they have been made slaves of righteousness. Which is a delight in Christ's precious name. Amen.